morning, everyone. It is absolutely delightful to be with you again. And I would ask for your prayers very much for my wife and myself over the next seven weeks. I am going to be away in Eastern Europe, uh, going to the UK, little sidetrack through the USA. I've got to catch up with some needy churches there. Um, sort of um, full on for the Lord, but they need a little boost. And they've asked me to do a sidetrack, but then into Norway and um, Western Germany and Moldova. Now, Moldova is on the southwestern border of Ukraine. I can't get into Ukraine, where we've supported many, many orphans for many years. 30 years, for this fact, in Eastern Europe. And um, I'm going to need your prayers, because we have a program planned, but my <laughs> experience is what goes down on paper sometimes gets changed, or something more fruitful comes up. Now, I'm going to ask you to take our latest news bulletin, which is on the table and on the counter. Take it home and pray over this as a reminder. Our Homeless Kids Center, called the House of Hope, is full of people. Now, we evacuated all the orphans we had there to Western Germany. The Jewish Messianic Society loaned us an old village. I thought it was very nice, but it had been condemned, and the city council of Düsseldorf extended the uh, renewal order to December. So possibly if we can't find another village in uh, Western Germany, we're gonna have to move the House of Hope kids, quite a couple of thousand, to Eastern Europe, up to um, uh, Norway. Now, I'm heading over there to try and organize this, pay the money that's needed, and also to uh, check on the refugees. A lot of Jewish people have been coming out of Ukraine. They remember that after one of the Olympics at which I was a counselor, they uh, invited me to speak at the Jewish synagogue in Odessa. And it was hilariously funny because uh, it's not like a, reg a regular church that they shout at you, they shout at the speaker from the congregation, hey, please, I'm, I'm point number three in my, my sermon. They say, go back to point number one. And somebody says, no, I want point number two again. They argue with each other. It's fun. It really is fun. And you know what they've gravitated to, so I forget about points three and four and just go to the first two points again to emphasize it. Well, those Jews remembered the, the hilarity, and they have come to the House of Hope knowing they're on a Russian hit list and they've got to get out. We're taking so many Jewish people out. Look, they're not born again, but by the time they get to Düsseldorf in Western Germany, three-day bus ride on our two old Mercedes Sprinter buses, we're taking about 100 people out a week. Orphans, elderly poor people whose homes have been bombed or they can't afford to run their homes any longer. I'm talking about 485 villages in the Odessa province. We've excavated the people out. By the time these Jewish people get to Düsseldorf, they're born again. Because my managers say to them, 
my managers have been trained to say to them, we are Gentiles, but we have believed in your Messiah. And they say, who is our Messiah? HaMashiach Yeshua, Messiah Jesus. You know, Jesus wasn't a Christian. Jesus was a Jew. That's how I lead Muslims to Jesus. I say, I'm not asking you to become a Christian. They were named Christians rather derogatively in Antioch. People who followed the way were called Christ ones, Christians, with a derogative tinge to it. We've adopted that, that title today. But these Muslims say, well, okay, I'm not a Christian, but I'm a Muslim. I have embraced a Jewish Messiah, and I'm following a Jew. Wow. That's brilliant. <laughs> and, uh, well, by the time these Jewish people reach Western Germany, they're in the kingdom of God. And then they're in the hands of the Jewish Messianic Society that I've trained in evangelism over the years. You know, it's like you look back and you see all the, the dots connected. Like the kid's puzzle, connect the dots. You never know where the next dot's going to be. You've just got to keep plodding on and say, oh, this is God's opening. So I'm trusting that is one of those significant dots where things are going to be connected. A lot of people are going to get saved. Now, I've been asked by the Bishop of Moldova to come there for two days. Now, people said, you're going to Ukraine. I cannot enter Ukraine. I don't have a Ukrainian passport or residence permit. And Australia is quite an ally of Ukraine. And if anything happens to me, there could be ructions. Now, I'm not that important in the government's eyes, but I don't want to do something stupid. But those Moldova people are jealous of the House of Hope kids who know how to lead people to Jesus. They planted about 1,200 house churches in southeastern Ukraine, southwestern Ukraine, because the neighbors can't wait for our teams to get back for the next month. So they take the provisions and medicines and food that we've given them with the Bibles, their children's picture Bibles that they've started reading for the first time in Russian, first time in their lives. They get so excited about growing in God's Word. They can take a Bible to their neighbors and some food. They have a bit of fellowship. And the neighbors say, well, look, I'm going to go to other neighbors. Can we do this every week? We've ended up planting house churches. Now, I didn't teach them that. The Holy Spirit put it in their hearts to create what we would call a house church. Now, this has caused jealousy and envy in some other nations who want to learn how to lead people to Christ. Just a wonderful opportunity. So I'm asking you to pray about those things. I pray for my wife while we, I'm on my way for seven weeks. <clears throat> Well, Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to the fathers here, to the fathers-to-be, and to the mothers who have to be fathers as well. And um, you know this, the, the mums I'm um, acknowledging here, you struggle on your own. A lot of single mums around, especially in Eastern Europe. They're doing a wonderful job to keep their families together. We take out sometimes whole families. I see them huddled in the back of the Mercedes bus all the family arms linked to sleep. And that touches my heart. That we're saving whole families. Because some of the husbands are in the military. They might never see their families again. That breaks my heart. So if they're watching this on Facebook, I acknowledge them wherever they're watching this. And I want them to rem be remembered. Now, <clears throat> what does it take? And what does it mean to be a dad? Well, we usually think of an old recipe. First, you take one guy, you crack him open, mix him with a girl, 
stir vigorously, take the mixture and put it in an oven for nine months, and then poof, you're a dad. <laughs> but you know, that's not true. That's just a biological process. It doesn't go to the heart of what being a dad is. In fact, being a dad has nothing to do with biology. <laughs> what being a dad is, love. Love and commitment. Not some warm, fuzzy, emotional feeling. That depends on circumstances. When circumstances change, the going gets rough, you stop being a dad. It's not that at all. Now, that's what you may have learnt from your forebears, your father, your grandfather, their brothers. I learnt that from my dad. They came back from World War II, tough guys. I was uh, probably three years old when my dad appeared on the scene. I thought, who's the strange, strange man in the house? Suddenly I had to divert my attention to learning from this man. He did his best, but I was incomplete as a dad, or well, I had to learn along the way. So being a dad is not about the title. It's about doing stuff. The Bible is full of stories of fathers. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jesse, David, Solomon, just to mention a few. The stories are very honest and very frank and very real. There are some who ignored their children at a terrible price. There are others who doted on their kids and spoiled them. Some had favorites, some had none. Each of these men, we find mistakes and errors. And not the kind you can just sweep under the rug and hope people won't notice. These were mistakes that changed countless lives, that altered the course of history. And that bothers me, you know. I try and take precautions everywhere. I impose that in my teams without being fearful, without looking over my shoulder all the time. Just a set of standards that uh, keep me on the right track. And keep those standards before you because people are watching. Your children are watching you. And more than your children are watching you, others are watching you because they heard that you're a child of God. You're a man, you're a woman of Christ. They're watching you. It's not just for yourself that you're surviving. Now, I've been a father for 55 years. <laughs> and I've made mistakes along the way. Sometimes I've been too tough in my discipline. Sometimes I haven't been sympathetic enough or kind enough or loving enough. Times I wasn't very encouraging. Those are my mistakes and I deeply regret them. But one thing I've learned is to apologize. I want to tell you, it takes a lot for a man to say, I was wrong. Please forgive me. And you watch the look on your kids' faces Looks of emotion I'll never forget. They say, gosh, he's human. He's human. Because I tell you, guys, your wives and your kids know when you're wrong. And you think you're right. <laughs> Listen to them. It's a great man. A great leader who can say, I was wrong. Please forgive me. And you'll find them coming out of the woodwork saying, please forgive me too. And a healing takes place. Some of you know that as a result of supporting orphanages, I minister to the military in Eastern Europe, in a number of Eastern European countries. It came out of supporting orphans. Various brigadier generals found out that I supported orphans and asked me, 
when their ragtag armies came back from Afghanistan, some of them lost limbs, many of them lost their lives. 40% of the marriage were dissolving because Korean soldiers have a tough time. And there was one military commander. I liked him very much. I won't mention his name. He looked very sad, and I thought, well, perhaps he's lost men uh, on the battlefield. His life is at risk as well. And I asked him over lunch. I said to him, what's bothering you, sir? He said, my family. I came into the military because it was a good proposition of earning money and a good pension and a good insurance payout if I got killed. But I lost my family in the process. I lost my first marriage. Second marriage is shaky. But what bothers me most, <sighs> the children from my first marriage, now in their mid to late 20s, hate me. I'm coming up for retirement. Some of my friends have died. They're not around any longer. And I'm going to be a miserable, lonely old man. My heart went out to him. He was crying at the lunch table. I dismissed the others. And I said to him, what would be the thing that made you the most happy at this point in time? He said that I could be friends with my first son and my first daughter. They live in this country. I said, give me their addresses. I'm going to write to them on my Australian letterhead. They won't know who I am. They won't know the connection. Sort of a blanket letter. And I included a little book, a little follow-up booklet that I, I've written. It's in nine different languages now, uh, called Following Jesus. And in the two center pages are the issues to avoid as a Christian, carrying unforgiveness, unforgiveness and bitterness because you've been hurt, especially within your family. Because if you don't forgive someone, someone who's hurt you, it's like you drinking a glass of poison hoping it's going to kill that other person. It'll devastate you first. And it'll destroy others around you. I put a little paste-it, look here first, on those two pages. And with this blanket letter, I sent it off to these youngsters. And I saw the man six months later, back in his country again, again doing more seminars for the military. I said to him, by the way, what happened to what I suggest I do? He said, well, the first call I got was about three or four months after you left last time. Dad, we've got to talk. Then a month later, I got a call from my daughter. Dad, we've got to talk. He said, I found as a result of reading your little book, they'd got saved. Oh. <laughs> and then he said, we've got together. There was a lot of emotion, a lot of tears. But he said, I found my first wife had got saved as well. And she was attending a prayer meeting and they were praying for me. <laughs> he said, look, there's no hope of a restoration in marriage, but the, the, the best thing has happened. We're all in God's kingdom. His life came together. I don't see him anymore because he got such a tremendous promotion because he got his life and his family together. You know, for me, that's payday. I don't get paid for that, but I, that, that was payday. Um, so I'm telling you something that really works. You know, I've been able to help my children and to be a father figure to them and to my granddaughter as well. My granddaughter, well, I'm not going to go into detail. Um, her father walked out when she was a baby. He, he was insecure and he couldn't cope. I still like the guy. I led him to the Lord. But I don't see him very much. Anyway, I'm the one who assumed the role of being her dad. 
disciplined her. I'm now teaching her to drive. She is two centimeters taller than me. Still calling me grandpa. And um, she wears her Doc Martin boots that makes her another two centimeters taller. But um, she was texting me in the meeting, Grandpa, have you got any perspex? I'm in an, an art project at the moment. I said, no, I don't have any perspex. I'm going to see her this afternoon. She and her boyfriend are taking me out for um, a Father's Day meal. But, um, you know, I heard a preacher once boldly declaring that all problems with teenagers and young adults are caused by parents who aren't doing their jobs properly. He went so far as to say that either you're a good parent or a bad parent. There's nothing in between. Later, I discovered he was so wrong. Everyone cheered him. It grieved me to hear a man say that. He probably had a problem himself. Because I've known very good parents who got, kids got into serious trouble. And I've seen some sorry, neglectful parents whose kids have turned out to be great. So what's true here? It's this. We're all called to do the best we can, dads and mums, in following God's leading as he's our ultimate father. And if you're short of examples, keep asking him for guidance, helping you to make your decisions, going back on the wrong decisions you made and saying, I was wrong. And you'll see a healing and reconciliation taking place. You know, it's hard work. It requires dedication. And there'll always be mistakes because we're not perfect, but we can overcome them with love. And love means being involved. T-I-M-E spells out the love we have for our wives, our husbands, and our children. May not be great lengths of time, but quality time, where only they matter. Turn your phone off. Nothing distracts you. They, people appreciate that. You know, some men may say here, I have no children. Do you really think you have no responsibility about being a dad to someone? In this world, there are millions of kids who will never see their fathers, and millions who have no father, who abandoned them, died, got divorced, and Satan uses this indifference in teenagers. I find when I'm ministering the gospel to teenagers, no matter where in the world, high schools, in Ireland, Catholic high schools, or um, in Eastern Europe, to orphans boarding schools with teenagers, they have no picture in their mind of God as a heavenly father. Because men, we are many pictures of who our heavenly father is to us. And when we say to people, come into a relationship with God as your heavenly father, how are we going to show that to them? Maybe building a friendship first before they'll finally click. I lead people to Christ who said, I knew Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but God as my father. I had no idea what a father was until I started watching you, Dave. You gave me time. You know, five young guys came to me on my third trip to Latvia in 1993. They were nuisances. They were pests. They were all quality young men from a very big Russian-speaking Latvian Pentecostal church. And, uh, you know, I'm confident to mention their names. Um, Sasha, Andre, Dimitri, Alexei, Andrew. They turned up every afternoon just after school. I called the one young man's 
father and said, listen, he's spending every afternoon with me for the whole two weeks that I'm here. I'm scared he's going to get behind on his homework. He's done his homework four weeks in advance so they can come to serve you. I realized the quality of their commitment. They'd heard me speak in their church and wanted to hang out with me. Well, it was brilliant for us. A team of 10, we had five young guys. Every couple, every two people that I sent people out in twos had an interpreter and someone who understood English. They learned English at school. And I saw these guys starting to grow. But the awful thing was when we'd finished the afternoon session to an orphanage or a prison or um, a youth reformatory and a village church in the evening, it was 10, 10, 30, 11 p.m. when we got back to this one-star hotel we were staying at. Team were exhausted. And these guys wanted to talk. They knew I liked ice cream. Now, there were no gas stations anywhere. Just a year out of communism. It was still dark. No free enterprises. You had to look for a home ice cream manufacturer, and they knew one on the other side of the city. So we walked the 45 minutes to the other side of the inner city, woke up this family, and walked back with ice cream. And they were asking questions. How do you conduct relationships? Give them some standards on their sexuality. And then in your message, you, you spoke to someone like you'd read his emails. You, 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 you told him his history. Where'd that come from? They were in a Pentecostal church. They had had no teaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit about tongues, interpretation, and prophecy, words of knowledge. And, and they said, you stopped in the middle of your message to say to someone, A, B, C, D, and they came alive. What's that all about? You know, I realized the pastors under the KGB for 50-odd years of communism in those nations had never mentored anybody, didn't share their hearts and the information with people in case the KGB got a hold of them, wrung the information out of them and used it against the leaders. Everyone was quiet. These guys were growing. Even asked one young cheeky guy, said, um, your wife is a very beautiful person. I wondered where he was going with this. He'd seen some pictures. He said, she must have been a stunner when she was 18 when you met her and I was 20. He said, how did you keep your hands off her? I said, with great difficulty. But I said, we had a standard. I said, when, he said, what if you were on the back seat of a car together? I said, no problem, I didn't have a car. She didn't marry me for my car. Only had a car 18 months later after we were married. I said, we always had an open Bible between us on the seat. He said, oh, that doesn't sound like fun. And I turned and took a swing at him and he got out the way just in time. That guy's married with three kids. He's doing well. But um, I realized they had no teaching about this. Well, those guys became my managers. Sasha is still my manager 30 years later. He's a year younger than my youngest daughter. But if I have a plan of succession, Sasha's the one to take over for me in Europe. He could step into my shoes. He does most of the groundwork. We have seven other managers under him. You know, I really don't have to be there urgently. I have to this time. But it's being a father figure to them. And it was, look, it'll always be at the most annoying time. Look, I, I think I must have looked impatient, but they looked past that. They thought, we're going to get as much out of this guy as we can. Being a father to them. In fact, his father, Sasha's father before he passed away, lovely Jewish man. Sasha's a Jew. He's one of the main uh, agents in Europe helping Jews to come out of this Eastern European and Russia to get to Israel. He's a priceless guy. 
His father said, you know, you have been more of a dad to him than I have. I said, no, no, so that's not right. You have put your heart and soul into that boy. He's a quality man because of you. He had that on his heart when he died. His mother passed away last week. Hard life under the Soviet Union. I paid for him to fly back to that nation to bury his mother. <sighs> and these people came into my lives at the most annoying moment. There, were <laughs> there was a young man in Bloemfontein. Now, this is important. Bloemfontein in South Africa. You might have heard David Reich talk about the danger spots in South Africa. This was a hotbed of political violence. I was often asked to go there because I spoke, I speak one of the major languages. I grew up with the Zulu kids. I speak the Zulu language because I learned all the swear words first and then I had to kick them out afterwards. Imagine a bunch of kids kicking each other's shins and shouting words at each other. Anyway, um, the, um, <clears throat> this young guy heard I was going into the townships during the day not just speaking in the church at night. I could speak to three to 5,000 students in maybe four different schools and then go back the next day for follow-up. And many were getting saved. The police had to stop, stamp a permit of mine going in and out of that area that gave them release from any danger that I was putting myself in. Your life is your responsibility now. I never so much had a stone thrown at me, not a scratch on my car. Not my trailer was wrecked, nothing. And this young man had just got his driver's license. His name was Ati, I guess short for Arthur. And um, he just got his driver's license. The pastor said, let him drive you around during the day. He hasn't got work yet. Well, on the second day, the dust kicked up by a thousand kids in their courtyard got into my throat. Oh, man, I felt like I was swallowing razor blades. And I said to young Ati, I said, you've got to speak today. He said, what am I speak on? I've never done this before. I said, share your testimony. You saw what I did yesterday. Well, he made a couple of mistakes that weren't noticeable, and he copied my altar call, and he was amazed. He nearly fell off the little platform when he saw about 500 kids raise their hands to receive Jesus. <laughs> the second day, I was fine, but I pretended still to have a sore throat, and I pushed him off the diving board again. <laughs> he did so well. Of course, when he came to speak in the Afrikaans speaking schools, that was his major language. I can speak Afrikaans very well, but with my accent, it sounds terrible. People block their ears and say, stay with English. Your accent is terrible. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But um, then he disappeared. He went to uh, Pretoria to work and university. I never saw him again. Now, skip ahead some 25 years. I hear of this young man, Art Boshoff, speaking at a minister's conference in Rodney Howe Brown's church in Tampa, in Florida. And he knows that, well, I've known Rodney Howe Brown since he was 18. And um, I helped him a little bit too, moving in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And um, Ot said he wanted to, to meet me. So I'd drive the four hours across Florida the next day, because I happened to be in Titusville on the, the, the East Coast, and through all the Disney traffic, and I find that Art has left the night before because his brother was dying of cancer. He had to get back to South Africa. But I hear this story about Art. He said, you tell Uncle Dave that he was the one who pushed me off the diving board and forced me to dive and forced me to swim. And I'm sure a lot of other people mentored him from there on. 
because he now pastors 350,000 people. Two big cathedral Pentecostal churches, one in Bloemfontein, his hometown, one in Pretoria, in 17 other locations where he has African pastors, very wise, in different areas, and I think in seven other countries. Now look, I can't claim anything. To, maybe I just gave him a little kick in the butt. But it was a most inconvenient time, and yet he stepped into the gap. You've all heard of Reinhard Bonnke. Great evangelist, he passed away a couple of years ago, 79 years of age. He relates the story that when he was 21, in 1962, he had finished Bible college in Wales. And that, that night, he was going on the train from London, on the ferry, across to Hamburg in Germany, where his parents lived, going back home. Well, he stopped in London for the day. He had a few coins in his pocket. He couldn't go on an organized tour, but he decided to ride buses. He got a bus pass for a day. And he got off one bus and got on another bus, and he zigzagged all over London, and he ended up in a northeastern suburb called East Ham. Now, my last time in the UK, I preached in a church in East Ham that is very significant because it links to the story. Reinhardt was walking down these lovely um, shaded lanes looking at the gates and the gardens of these houses, and he saw a name on a nameplate on the door, George Jeffries. Now, George Jeffries, millions of Georges in Britain. Jeffries, common name in Britain. But he wondered if this was the George Jeffries, together with his brother Stephen, who got saved during the Welsh revival, and as teenagers got so on fire for Jesus... They demanded from God the signs and wonders flow through their young ministries, and God honored that. George and Stephen Jeffries, look it up, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-E-S, George and Stephen Jeffries, and you'll find a team of Australians put together a 10-minute movie clip of the history of these men, amazing men. George was the teacher, um, and uh, Stephen was the fiery one. And George planted a whole start of churches that are famous in Britain, they call the Elam Pentecostal churches. And so Reinhardt walked up to the door, knocked on the door, and a very large lady filled the door. And he said, Madam, my name is Reinhardt Bonke. I've just finished Bible college, and I'm just touring around London, going back to Germany tonight. Uh, please, would you mind not starting playing yet? Because it interferes with my hearing aids. I've got Bluetooth on my hearing aids. Sorry, <laughs> I should have told you before that. Okay. Well, um, she said, yes, it is, but he doesn't see anyone anymore. You can't come in. And behind her, a man's voice said, let him in. God told me he was coming. I want you to see the chance meeting like this. He spent three quarters of an hour with George Jeffries. They knelt the floor together and George prayed his mantle upon Reinhardt. And Reinhardt went to South Africa where I met him. I worked with him on three occasions, four occasions. Stepped into his shoes sometimes when he had to leave early. I got to know him well. When Reinhardt got back to Hamburg the next morning, he didn't have time to tell his father who met him at the train station what he'd just found out. At that time, he'd spent with George Jeffries. His father said, we got a call this morning from church friends in Britain. George Jeffries passed away last night. 
The last thing he did was pass his mantle on to Reinhardt. That's why Reinhardt is the way he is. Friends, you know, you could meet somebody like that who turns out to be a world reformer, a world reformer. And you'll go in God's records. If no one recognizes you on this earth, you'll go in God's record in heaven of the man who gave them a kickstart. I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads in prayer, please. I'm going to pray for you that you as a mother or a father or maybe a single person will become a father or mother, a brother, sister in the faith where you learn from your heavenly father on how to be patient and loving even if it's at an inconvenient time. You can always catch up with your time later on. Don't even get an impatient look on your face. It'll drive that person away. I want to pray for you. I'm going to pray an anointing on you to be a godlike figure in many people's lives, and you'll see the results over the years. Maybe you'll only see them in eternity. Lord, I pray for each person in this place. I pray your anointing upon them and a sense of urgency to change their focus, to see people, young people, in their lost condition and project the image of Christ and our Heavenly Father in us to them. We're going to see results. We'll see this church grow. We'll see your kingdom grow. Now, if there's somebody sitting here this morning or someone watching this on Facebook and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to close with a prayer where you can invite Jesus into your life. Know that you're saved. Your destination changes from hell to heaven by this simple but profound decision. Pray this prayer with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry that I haven't given you my attention, but that stops today. I want to invite you into my life, and I open the door now and welcome you as my Savior and Lord. Please forgive all my sins and help me to serve you from this day onward as your child. Thank you, Lord, for hearing my prayer. Thank you that I'm saved and I'm in your kingdom. I want to be, help many others into your kingdom as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Folk, God bless you. Thank you for listening this morning. And I know that you're going to follow this through. You'll see the results. Thank you so much.